You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. I ask you to please take your Bibles or your device and you can go to Hebrews 12. And we keep looking at the book of Hebrews and Hebrews keeps telling us to look to Jesus, looking to him every Sunday, uh, looking to him every day, and looking to him as we run our race uh, as a Christian life. So what we saw last week, that we are to keep looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, as we run with this race, with this glorious goal and, and prize in mind, and that in fact, we are actually heading in this race towards a party. This is one of the great analogies that the writer of Hebrew gives us. Yes, the Christian life is a marathon. And at the same time, he tells us it is also a heavenly and a holy party, a a holy party on Mount Zion. There, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem with King Jesus. And that's what we see today, how he wants to encourage us to endure and to run the race. So as we do every week, if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. And we'll begin in verse 14 of chapter 12. Beginning in verse 14, the Holy Spirit tells us, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and a gloom and a tempest and the sounds of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us now as we gather, as we assemble as your people with your word here, 
which your spirit help us open our eyes and open our hearts and give us ears to hear. Meet us now, Lord, what it means for us to be in Mount Zion. Help us now, King Jesus. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think wedding receptions are usually hit or miss. I've been to some wedding receptions where they are complete parties. They are a blast. Everyone is dancing. Everyone's toasting. There's great food. Uh, People never get off the dance floor. Uh, Ours was like that. Almost 10 years later, over 10 years later now, I will still hear from people go, man, your wedding reception was awesome. And they usually tell me that when we're at a lame wedding reception. Like yours was great. And you've been to those where there's music, but no one is dancing. Everyone is sitting in their chairs and that poor DJ is trying, like, come on, everybody. And everybody's like, nope, we're not, not happening. People are barely talking to each other. They're just fiddling on their phones, eating their cheese cubes. It, it's just like, it's like everyone has agreed to play a competitive, quiet game during the wedding reception. It is forgettable. And that's really how wedding receptions go. They're either unforgettable or they are forgettable. And it has to do with how much celebrating and how much joy is present there. And friends, Hebrews describes the Christian life in a variety of ways as a race, as we saw last week. And one of them is an all-out party, a 2 a.m. rager in the grace of God. Look at verse 22. So he's contrasting Mount Sinai and the gloom and the darkness and the storm. And now he's also contrasting Mount Zion, this heavenly city, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. Well, what is this? It is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And look at this, into innumerable angels. And what is happening with these angels? They are in festal gathering. That is a fancy old school Bible word for a bash. They are having a party. They are celebrating. And this is what he says. This is what we have come to. So we have come to this city, to the city of God, where there is not drab, boring, gray dullness, but there is bright, there is joy, there are colors, there, are, there is a party. Christianity is not boring. It's actually the most thrilling life in the universe. The great Gatsby has nothing on the great glory of God. Because life in Christ is is an all-out celebration with the King of Kings in his city, in his kingdom. Because the gospel, the news of Jesus' death, paying for our sins and his resurrection, him conquering death, is now, and the Bible describes it as an invitation to a wedding feast. The party that God is throwing in his kingdom and that all sinners are welcomed by faith. This is the picture Jesus uses multiple times in the gospels. The master, this is the story Jesus uses. A master says to his servants, the party's ready. Go out into the city and tell them to come. The banquet is ready. The the wine is ready. The food is ready. Tell them to come to the wedding banquet. The servants go out. Hey, it's ready. It's ready. And no one comes. Jesus is using this as a story to show the Jewish people, you're rejecting the party that's here, that's arrived, the kingdom. So the servant tells the master, master, they're not coming. And he says, okay, fine. Go out into the city, go out into the towns, go out into the other towns, go out to the homeless, go out to the poor, go through the streets, go through the alleyways and tell them all you are invited to come into the great party that is the kingdom of God. There's more room. Are you at God's party? 
Are you celebrating new life with God? Dour and drab and sour, somber, a Christianity that makes smiling illegal, that is not real Christianity. Christianity is a party filled with joy. It's the kingdom of God. It's his party. And so what does it feel like for us to be in God's kingdom, for God to be our host, to be in his house, to have life with God? As citizens of Mount Zion, how do we live? He shows us. He shows us what we pursue and how we act at this party. What is the attire and what what are the kind of ethics and behavior at this party? Well, look at what, what, what we pursue in this party, beginning in verse 14. Look at what he says. Here's what we pursue at this party. Strive for peace with everyone. See, that word strive is really important for us. Because the word strive is to pursue, to, to do something. So at this party, this doesn't mean there are no rules at God's party. God's party isn't a frat house. It's God's house. And holiness and love and obedience are still important. That's why he says, strive, pursue peace with everyone. Just a great reminder for us that really, are you at odds with any Christian? Are you at odds with another Christian? Even your spouse? People in the church? Is there active hostility between you and someone else? That's really awkward at a party. <laughs> that's why that's here. Because this is, this is not meant to be in the kingdom of God. And we've all been there. You, you're at a work party or a family gathering, and there's that one person, that one family member, and y'all are both acting like y'all aren't there, that they don't exist. But God says, this is not to be this way. Pursue, strive for peace. You pursue it. You go after it. They may not agree to the terms. They may not welcome peace. But he says, that doesn't matter. He says, you are to pursue it. And pursue it with love that he says, everyone. He doesn't just say, strive for peace with believers, which is true. Strive for peace with everyone. Unbelievers too. Because we can't be hypocrites. We can't party it up in the kingdom of God and then go out into the world and act like a bunch of grouches. I need to say this because I think Christians, we still mess these things up with the way that we interact with, with each other. Even, especially, with, this is worse with unbelievers, but when we do it with each other, it's really bad. If you have two-way hostility with someone, anger, resentment, lack of peace, uh, and y'all both know it, that's, that's an easy, okay, we need to deal with this. One of us has got to pursue peace and you go for it. But if you have one-way hostility, They don't know that you're angry. They don't know that you've been mean internally in your mind the whole time and and grouchy and saying sinful things in your heart, but you've never expressed them. You've never actually done anything where they would think you've sinned against them. It's all been internal. You've been avoiding them, but they don't even notice. They think everything's fine. Don't say to them when they think everything's fine. You know, after the sermon today, I I didn't pursue peace. I've been despising you for a couple of years now. And um, I just want you to know I'm sorry. Don't do that. That may make you feel better, but it's not making them feel better. Oh, so when we went on vacation together, you hated me the whole time? See, that's a release valve for your own sin, but they don't even know that you've sinned against them. There's no forgiveness to offer. Like, hey, as far as I know, you haven't sinned against me. You've only been sinning against God. So what needs to happen there is 
you confess those sins to God. You pursue peace with God and then love your brother or sister. Don't do that. It doesn't go well. And see what else he says to pursue and why this matters? Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's amazing that he says there is to be peace between us and also you're to pursue holiness. This is how important striving for peace is, that it would be side by side with pursuing Christ-likeness, pursuing godliness, living like Christ. We've got to strive for it while we're in God's party. See how important this is. Without which no one will see the Lord. These are really strong words. So you're telling me if I don't strive after Christ's likeness, I won't see God? I'm not telling you that. The Bible is telling you that. God is telling you that. So what does this mean? It means that we strive for growing in Christ, for being like Christ, not to earn anything from Christ, but because we are in Christ. Not to become Christians, but because we are Christians. That's why people who pursue holiness, they will see the Lord because they are Christians. But the people that don't pursue holiness, who don't strive, who don't try to put their weights and sins aside that easily entangle them, the ones who aren't convicted of sin and, and confess and repent, but those who just don't care and kind of do their own thing, the Bible says you should not be comfortable in thinking you are a Christian. And I love that he says strive, not arrive. This is one reason why sometimes we get uncomfortable with verses like this, because we read it as if you don't arrive at perfect holiness, you will not see the Lord. Well, that's not what it's teaching. The word is strive, pursue, not you better be perfect. None of us on this side of human history is perfect. We are pursuing growth. We are pursuing Christ-likeness. We are growing in Christ, living like Jesus, becoming more like Jesus because of Jesus. This isn't legalistic. This is Christianity. This, would be, this is no more legalistic than imagine me telling the Olympic committee, filing an official complaint. I don't think it's fair that Usain Bolt won a gold medal. I should win one too. I didn't train. I didn't enter, I didn't run, but I watched. I watched him. Don't I deserve the prize too? If I was telling you this over coffee, what would you say to me? I said, Jeff, you need to let go. <laughs> it, you're crazy. You wouldn't say, you're right. The Olympic committee, they're being so legalistic. No. In the same way, if you are a Christian, if your faith is in Christ, you're running the race. You're striving forward towards the goal. There, there are things we do because we are Christians, because we're running the race. So don't confuse these striving for holiness with something, this verse is teaching how to become a Christian. This verse is teaching how you live as a Christian. Not how you enter the race, but how you run the race. We enter the race. We are saved by faith in the crucified and risen Christ alone for our sins and nothing else. So his message to hear right now as we live in this party is not let's just check out and lounge, but also are you striving forward? Are you pursuing holiness? 
Are you living in a response to God's grace and his mercy and, and laying aside the things that tangle you, laying aside the sins that you're aware of and going to God's standard of what the good life is and not your own, not any other man's or woman's. And also, we got to help each other run this race. This is, this is also kind of why the church exists. Jesus didn't die and rise again and go back to the Father just to give us the Bible and just to give us some disconnected truths. But a body, one another. That's why verse 15 is here. Look at verse 15. See to it. So we have a responsibility here. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. He's inviting us to help each other run, to look after each other. And I love that even one, as one translation says, look after one another. Because the Christian life isn't a solo race. You want to celebrate with others. You want to rejoice with others. And you want to help each other run. And when people are, this word fail to obtain, this doesn't mean that they did something and now God says, oh, you're too sinful. You got to go. No, God saved us at our most sinful. He saved us with all of our sins in mind. This verse is not teaching about losing your salvation. This verse is teaching about someone saying, you know what? I'm abandoning all of this. This is something they willfully did. I'm walking away. And the Bible says, no, call them back. Because God uses that as a means of bringing his children back. The prodigals back. Don't fail to obtain the grace of God. Don't, don't turn away. They didn't make it to the final party. This is what this is warning. And we see people in our church. We should call them. No, no, come back. People in family, no, come back. This is like when you're at the deli counter in the grocery store. You're getting that fresh cut boar's head meat. It takes forever. They're never in a rush, never. You're waiting and waiting and waiting. And maybe you even take a number if they've got that and you're waiting and waiting and you've got other shopping to do. And so you're like, forget it. I'm just gonna come back. You leave, lose your spot. You go do your other shopping, get it all done. And then you're at the checkout counter. You're there, you're boop, your milk and you got eggs and all this stuff's going through. You, what if you said, hey, I'm supposed to have a pound of boar's head Cajun turkey here sliced out of one. Where is it? I came here for that. I want it. They ripped me off. I took the number. I even waited. I want it. Well, that would tell you, sir, you, you didn't stay. If you would have stayed in line and waited, then you would have got it. But you can't just now say, hey, I waited for a little bit. I want it now. Remember, these Christians, they're thinking about leaving Christianity and going back to Judaism. He's telling them, don't do that. You cannot abandon Christ and think everything will be fine. His message to them is to endure till the end, to live by faith till the end. And that's his message to us. Endure till the end. We are to try to help one another stay in the deli counter line. To wait till the end. To pursue peace, to strive after holiness. To live empowered by Jesus and to live with the risen Jesus. Also making sure, verse 15, because sometimes life does get hard and things happen and we don't respond well. That's why the second half of verse 15 is here. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up, causes trouble, defiling many. Why, why do roots of bitterness spring up? Because disappointments happen. Because we do get sinned against. That's why he says strive for peace and holiness. Because when we're sinned against, when disappointments happen, we're able to deal with them. 
But when we don't, bitterness happens. And bitterness has a nasty bite to it. When we get hurt by others, we start to hurt others unless we forgive, unless we pursue peace. And if we don't do that, then we hide the pain and we plant it in our hearts and we watch it morph into bitterness and it spreads. It's contagious. It starts to spill onto others and the complaining comes out and the vile speech comes out and divisiveness comes out and the hateful words and, and critical attitudes and actions, it all starts to spill out onto others. And he says, see to it that this doesn't spring up among us. He says, we're to help each other. Rip out the root of bitterness. The root now, we can't just grab it. If you've ever plucked weeds and probably every child in here has either been taken out by their mother, or their father, or their grandmother and told to yank weeds out of this flower bed. You can't just grab the, the top. You got to get the root. You can't just grab it. So even when we're dealing with sins of our lives, we can't just grab, uh, okay, get rid of that anger, get, get rid of the you know, critical nature, get rid of those hateful, cynical things you said. He says, get down to the root of bitterness, to the sin that is under the sin and rip that out. More than the nasty comment, you gotta find the root of bitterness and you gotta pour the roundup of the gospel of grace on it. Because if you know the grace of God, that is the only thing that will destroy the bitterness in your heart. Because sometimes we, we think the bitterness will leave when everything turns right, when everything's put back in alignment. That may not happen. But only God's grace that we've been forgiven of all the nasty things we've done against God. And he forgives us. So now we are empowered to forgive each other. This is why Christian friendships will sometimes have to get dirt under their nails getting under the superficial topsoil and getting to the roots of our sins so we can finish the race and endure till the end. Because one of the big dangers here is that when sin and these roots of bitterness and all these things get kind of jumbled up in our minds, we begin to miscalculate the parties that are available to us in this world. Look at verse 16. So see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who is this? He's the one who sold his birthright for a single meal. This is an amazing story. He reminds us of Esau back in Genesis. He was the oldest son of Isaac. And as being the firstborn oldest son, he is going to receive the inheritance from his father. It's all going to be his. All the riches, boom. But Jacob, his younger brother, was a trickster. And Esau wasn't very bright either. He was a man who he settled for the immediate so one day Esau comes in from hunting. This is what Genesis tells us. And he's super hungry. He's, he's famished. He's starving. And there's his little brother making his favorite stew. Esau comes over. Jacob, man, I am so hungry. Please, can I, can I have some of that stew? I just love it. Please, let me have it. And Jacob says, oh, of course. But give me your birthright. Make it to where I'm the firstborn son and you're me. Give me your inheritance. And then I'll, I'll give you some of this too. What would you say if you were Esau? Imagine it's Thanksgiving. You're coming in. You're like, oh man, I love that sweet potato casserole. Oh, it's so good. And you see it and you've been working on the fried turkey, you've been working hard. And you ask your little brother, little sibling, little cousin, whatever. Hey, can I, can I have some of your casserole now? Yeah, if you give me um, your portion of the will. 
for that potato casserole that costs like two bucks to make? Are you crazy? I mean, here is Jacob making some ramen noodles and ass has the audacity to say, hey, give me your riches and your inheritance to come and you can have the ramen. What do you think Esau did? Esau should have said, you're nuts. I'll go make my own ramen. But the Bible tells us in Genesis that Esau said, who cares? I'm, I'm about to die anyway from starvation. I might as well eat. And he takes the stew. He, he exchanged his inheritance for some bowl of goulash. And Genesis says he despised his inheritance. He despised his birthright. Beloved, this, is, this verse is here. Make sure that no one is unholy like Esau so that you and I, that we would not exchange our inheritance with Christ for the stew of the world. Esau gave up his future for a single meal. Don't pawn your future for the sins of the world, for the pleasures of the world. Don't ruin your life and abandon your hope for the fleeting pleasures of sin, which are costly. You see people who are addicted to drugs and addicted to money and addicted to all kinds of things, and they ruin their lives for the costliness of the pleasures of the world. But the pleasures of God are free. The pleasures of the world destroy you. They dehumanize you. The pleasures of God lift you up, give you abundant life. They don't denigrate you. They give you your meaning back. They give you your hope back. It's the free gift of grace. Don't exchange and pawn out or trade out your enjoyment of your future with Christ and what Christ has given you for a single glance of something online. And that's what we do every time we sin. We're trading out our inheritance for a quick hit of pleasures of this world. Do you treasure your inheritance with Christ? That you're a co-heir of the universe with Christ, of the new Jerusalem is yours, that peace and eternity and joy and, and freedom. Do you enjoy these more than the fleeting pleasures of sin? Esau didn't look ahead. He lived by his urges, not by faith. So friends, let's not live by our sinful, temporary urges, but live by faith. I've seen people, I used to be part of a church, ruin their lives, ruin their marriages for a single moment of pleasure. Don't trade your inheritance. Treasure what you have in Christ. What you have in Jesus himself. So I love Fanny Crosby's hymn. Take the world, but give me Jesus. It's a great slam on Esau. I don't want the red stew. I want Christ. Now I want you to hear this. There is nothing in the universe. There is nothing in the universe that is worth exchanging your new birthright in Christ for. There is nothing in the universe worth exchanging your new birthright in Christ for. No sin, no pleasure, no encounter, no drug, no drink, no amount of money, and no experience is worth exchanging it. As Paul says in Philippians 3.8, 
I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul says, I see everything in the world will compare with Christ as a loss. And he takes it even further. He says, because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things. He's writing this from prison. Because of Christ, I'm in prison. And he doesn't say, "Eh, Jesus wasn't worth it. What does he say even further? And I consider all the things I've lost as dung so that I may gain Christ. A great tragedy is when people miscalculate the parties and pleasures offered in this world. The world's with God's. Paul saw the things of this world, the things that could be experienced, the things that are offered. When compared with Jesus, he saw them as a collection in a septic tank. Dung, the sludge at the bottom of a septic tank. Paul says, that's what the world is like when compared with Jesus. And it's that vivid in the Greek. Do you see it this way? Is your birthright in Christ, your new life in Christ, your inheritance to come with Christ, is it so precious to you and so valuable and so meaningful that now it tilts the appraisal of everything else in this world? That what used to be desirable to you is no longer desirable. What used to be the thing that you would give up anything for is now a thing you were willingly tossed to the side if it comes in conflict with Jesus Christ? Do you know your future and your blessings with God, blessings now and your eternity and your forgiveness that you know these things, so now you want to run the race. You want to chunk the weights and the sins and the hindrances that so easily entangle you. You want to strive for peace and you now want to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You want to rip up the root of bitterness because your future is incredibly bright because you know the party that is on Mount Zion. Look at verse 18. So now he's contrasting Mount Sinai and and, and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai is the place where they received the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament and where God's glory showed up in such a strong way, set this mountain on fire. Look at verse 18. He tells them and us, you haven't come to what may not be touched, this, this mountain, right? This blazing fire. Darkness and gloom, a tempest, a storm, is what that word means. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. This is all in Exodus, where they're hearing the voice of God and they're begging, we can't hear anymore. It's too much for us. It's too overwhelming. And that's why he says in verse 19, or verse 20, they could not even endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. That even if an animal went and touched the mountain, it would die. And God told them, if anyone other than Moses comes up on this mountain, they will be nuked by my glory. That is what is going to happen. Hebrews tells us we haven't come to this mountain. Verses 18 through 21, this is not Christianity. This is not the new covenant. This was the old. And sometimes this is how churches act. It's all gloom and doom and storm and tempest. And that sermon's so powerful that people walk out of there, man, I was so convicted today. I, man, I don't even know. I feel like a slug. I don't even know if I'm safe. Those aren't Christian messages. Our churches are not meant to be like Area 51. Uber serious, uber private, no joy, no relaxing. As though that's more holy. 
that we would be somber, that we'd be quiet, that we'd be super serious. No, Christianity, what about joy and new covenant forgiveness and love and mercy? Churches that act like they're Area 51 are not living in the new covenant and filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes you see it when, like, even when a pastor is preaching on joy, this is what it looks like. Preaching on joy. No. What have we come to? Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. We have not gone to Mount Sinai. We're at Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And here it is, to the innumerable angels and festal gathering. There the angels are partying and an an uncountable amount of angels partying, celebrating, rejoicing over God's mercy. That God has been so kind to save us that now there's nothing but celebrating God's kindness to us sinners. You know, this is the analogy we heard at the beginning of the sermon that Jesus uses and that parable. But what happens at the end of the prodigal son? The prodigal, the sinful son returns, he repents. What does the father say? What does Jesus say the father says? I'm glad you're back, son. Now you need to pay me back for everything you've done. No, I'm glad you're back, son. You need to go start reading the Old Testament. No, I'm glad you're back, son. Let's have a massive party. You know that calf, that special calf that we've been fattening up for a good thing? Let's get that little porker. Let's get him out here. Go get, go get my best clothes and put them on my son. What does Jesus say happens in heaven every time a sinner repents? Celebrating in heaven. This is even true in the Old Testament. God gave them commands to have parties. I command you to have a festival. See, we're learning about the character and nature of God. With him, the Christian life is it's, it's a, it's part bash, part concert, part family reunion, part Christmas, part Easter, part Thanksgiving, a dash of this and a dash of that, and that is Christianity. It is not somber. It is not a downer. Look at verse 23. So we've come to these things and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. These are Christians. That word assembly, it really means church. That's where we get the word church from, assembly. And the firstborn, well, who is the firstborn? Christ is the firstborn. That means the firstborn from the dead to never die again. And we've been called to this assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. These Christians who are there now, God's people together, we are with them. And we've come to, look at all, this, this is your reality now. This is all a part of your life if you are in Christ. And you've come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. There the Christians are again. Their bodies are here on the earth, but there they are in heaven now, made perfect. In verse 24, look at who we have come to. And to Jesus, our Savior. The mediator means the go-between, between us and God. You know how the Israelites couldn't approach Mount Sinai? and they would die if they touched the mountain and got close to God, how are we able to come to Mount Zion? How are we able to approach Mount Zion and not get torched by God's holiness? Because Jesus died for us. Because he spilt his blood. He went under the punishment of Mount Sinai so we could inherit the blessings of Mount Zion. That he died on the cross. He sprinkled his blood 
And he rose again so that we are welcomed into God's kingdom. That's why I love the end of verse 24. And we've also come to the sprinkled blood. That speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In the Old Testament, in Genesis, Abel was killed by his brother, Cain. And God says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So what does the blood of Abel speak? If Jesus' blood speaks a better word, the blood of Abel speaks, look at how sinful mankind is. That you would be so angry at your sibling, you would kill them out of just envy and rage and anger. This is how sinful mankind is, that now Abel's blood is a continual sermon for how wicked men and women are. But Jesus' blood speaks a better word. What does Jesus' blood preach? It preaches, yes, that we are sinful, but preaches that we can be redeemed. That sinful men and women can be saved, that there is redemption for us sinners because of Jesus' blood. His blood paying for our sins and him rising again from the dead now gives us access to Mount Zion. Have you come to Mount Zion? That's what he says in verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion. Have you? Do you see God as the God of Mount Zion? Or do you only see God as the God of Mount Sinai? God is both. These are not different gods. This is one God. But sometimes we only see him as Mount Sinai, and that is wrong. And sometimes we only see him as Mount Zion, and that's wrong too. This is God, but you see him as both. Do you see God as both for you? Are you at his party with joy, the salvation, the new life, and you can come to Jesus by faith alone? And you must, it's too costly to reject him because look at verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He goes on to say, they didn't escape him in the Old Testament. When he shook the earth, you will not escape him now when he will shake the universe. And what will stand is only his kingdom. Verse 28. If you're in Christ, this is us. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I mean, we must realize that in verse 26 and 27, he's saying, I am going to shake the universe. And what will stand is my kingdom that cannot be shaken. So beloved, if you're there, let us, he says, let us be thankful, grateful, and let's offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So we worship God for what he's done, that he's welcomed us into his kingdom, that our lives are with him. I pray that our church will always feel more like Mount Zion and not Mount Sinai. No doom and gloom, but joy and celebration because we know our future with Christ. So let's celebrate God's mercy. No lame wedding reception here, but a wedding party where bottle after bottle of gospel glories are uncorked and enjoyed liberally by God's people. That is Christianity. And let's celebrate him now at the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.